How's everybody's week? It's good. It's really cold, though. It was cold, but not cold enough. It was supposed to get like six to nine inches yesterday, and then we just got rain. That's because you probably use dark sky. <laughs> That's true. Dark sky is useless in the winter. I think dark sky works really well for like the minute-to-minute stuff, but I guess farther out, it's not as good. Well, I think it's just really bad predicting snow. So they average a bunch of sources, and if one of them is way off, it can change from snow to rain. But isn't that the point of averaging to remove errors? They have to work on their sources. They like discard the highest and lowest. But I, lo- I looked at that that day and like everyone, like there's like five sources that had 32 degrees and then one of them was like 36 and Dark Sky said it was raining outside and it was definitely a blizzard. Speaking of Dark Sky and Forecast.io, I've written two command line weather apps in the past few months. I use Forecast.io's API for both of them and it's a really good API, but you need a an API token to make any requests. So you can't just like distribute a binary to some user and say, here, you, now you can see weather because they need to like sign up and configure a token somewhere. Um, and also they only support uh, geo coordinates. So like latitude, longitude. So you can't say, here's my zip code or my city or my state and get a weather report back, which seems like an obvious feature. Like I know that they probably don't want to um, like pollute their API too much and have too many features, but it seems like from a user's perspective, unless you're on a mobile app and you're actually like using your location feature, Feature, you probably want to type in some place name and get weather for it. But can't you just do that separately in your app? Yeah, you can. It's just like another either request you need to make or another library you need to install. Mm-hmm. Whereas they probably know. I mean, Forecast.io's website has mappings from cities to to locations to weather reports. Yeah, but Forecast.io claims to be a little more specific. So if you're in Philadelphia, you're in a pretty big area. But I think there are some weather APIs that have uh, named location support, but I don't think. Any any of them allow tokenless access, which I, I found surprising. I guess somebody's got to pay for it and they want to limit who's using how much. I did find a library in JavaScript that has, uh, the library itself has the list of places to geo-coordinates and vice versa. Ruby has one of those, right? I think All so. Area. I couldn't find one in Go, so I think I'm just going to port the one from JavaScript to Go, and then my emoji weather would support zip codes. Zip codes, yeah. <laughs> I'm not big to make the binary, though, all those place names. It also has support to go from geo-coordinates to a place name, so I guess it just has to do like a geolocation, like radius search, and find the closest point. Because it has an array of, you know, zip code, place name, and then like the center of the city's geo-coordinates. So there was an article this week called Water Wheel Methodology. I think Len showed it to me. Yeah, my friend Trek wrote that, actually. It rang very true. Yeah. yeah. I also <laughs> like him calling it Water Wheel as like another way of saying waterfall, but saying that whenever you point out to someone that they're doing a waterfall system, obviously their answer is that they aren't. Yeah, I really love uh, the caption at the bottom. So there's a picture of a water waterfall going into a water wheel and the water wheel has the words agile around it. Uh, and then the caption at the bottom of the page is water wheel methodology so your dev team can feel good about itself. <laughs> so he's arguing that if your development team is you know, practicing Agile, they, they get a bunch of stuff from the backlog and do a sprint, but that backlog is defined and is being driven by product that because the, the requirements have always existed that you're doing water wheel. And not even that it's being driven by product, but that it's being driven by product like a long, long time frame in the future. Like right. there's like six months of stories in the backlog. <laughs> right. Um, or I guess what you would say if you were trying to do agile is like, we should only have this iteration and maybe like an idea for the next one or two. And then every week we're going to say what is most important and then pick those things. Right. I've always wanted to do the 37 signals uh, thing where they claim they don't have a backlog and there's no reason to put things in the backlog because if it's important, you're never going to forget it. And if you do forget it, then it wasn't important. I've never been able to actually convince anybody to do that. (laughs) It's because those guys are nuts. 
Well, there's like the backlog, then there's Icebox. And Icebox is just a thing where you dump ideas that get thrown out in a couple months. That's how it seems to be used anyway. Or you spend like a half hour trying to figure out what the story actually meant. And then you realize there's like three copies of it. Yeah, exactly. Like so you have an idea and say like, oh, we should, you know, cache this one thing with Reddit, for instance. And then you like put a chore in the icebox. Like that'd be nice to have one day. That would make, make stuff faster. And then you look through it and there's like two other copies of the same thing. And they're all, they're worded slightly differently. And there's a story to refactor something that doesn't even exist anymore. That was another article. Uh, I forget who wrote that. Uh, I think Ron Henry's. Um, that you should never put refactoring stories in the backlog. I agree with that. You should just do them now, or should no? So you should you should not do them. And when you have to update a feature in the future, that is the time to refactor. The time to refactor is when you're actually in the code changing something, not yes. on its own. Yeah, don't ever refactor something. So the thing, you know, a thing with technical debt is if you know there's code that should be refactored, but you don't actually have to touch it again. Like it's fine. You're not paying any interest in that debt. So there's no reason reason to stop and tackle it. Mm-hmm. And refactoring, you know, means not changing behavior, just changing the readability and the and the maybe like cleanliness of the code, right? So that you're it's reducing not changing. Yeah, and it's not changing API. behavior. So if it's if it's working and you have no reason to to change it otherwise and there's no reason to like make it cleaner. But if you do revisit that code and you need to change something like that is the time to fix the thing that you're trying to fix. And I think I think it's one of those things too, like if you just jump into it and you've not been doing this for, you know, over a year on a Rails app, for instance. Um, and then you decide, okay, we're going to refactor things now. It's going to be really hard. But if you've been doing this all along, then it becomes really easy. But, you know, back to the water wheel. So playing devil's advocate to the business side, like how do you predict how far out a feature is if if you don't have things in the back? Like, so we use Pivotal or whatever story track software to get a velocity and then we can use a velocity and estimated stories to predict when things will be delivered right but if we're not putting things in the backlog more than like one or two weeks how can we I mean, maybe it's just a fallacy that you can even predict anything past you know next week or this week and i guess it's done when it's done but sometimes people have deadlines and other external pressures it can go both ways like one could argue that you shouldn't do that but then you shouldn't do what like try and predict that far out but then in the real world you have to predict how predictions or stuff is the argument that i hear a lot but shouldn't i feel like at a bigger company there'll be less this is what works and this is what doesn't so their features might stay the same for 44 weeks so their roadmap companies that have like giant roadmaps and stuff they might not as they might not iterate as fast because they already have like uh, a product drawn out and the features they want and what's beneficial to the company but on a smaller scale or a smaller product you might have more changes and then it makes more less sense to put more stuff in the backlog right does that make sense yeah you know, I, I just guess, I guess the reality of like software development is that if we're working on the most important thing next and we're, I guess I'll just use like air quotes, like good developers, then we should be going as fast as we can anyway. And it won't really matter what's in the backlog and what we predict. But maybe, maybe the business has some kind of incentive of, you know, maybe they don't want to fund development if it's going to take too long. Well, I think the most important uh, thing there is the important thing that you said, like if you're planning months in advance, you know, you don't really know what the important parts are going to be. Can you guys or can you all imagine a backlog with 44 weeks of work and then kind of grooming it every so often and like throwing things out? Or is that? Yeah, that you spend, you've got to like dedicate a person to just <laughs> changing the reality of the backlog because it's going to shift. If you have that person and you have that long of a backlog and you need to throw stuff out and change it, like why did you make it in the first place? Exactly. And how did you estimate it so far? Mm-hmm. Things might be easier or harder, you know, based on what your current architecture is. 
I wish I had the charisma or sales skills to tell somebody in the business side to convince them to do like real agile. I've never been able to convince any client like, What's oh, I have no real idea how- agile? Well, like I've never been able to convince anybody from a business perspective that I have no idea how long something's going to take and we're going to do it as fast as we can. And like everybody wants an estimate, right? You know, there is a, a hack of uh, if you truly don't know a lot how long it's going to take, say like give us like a day and a half to work on it and then we'll have a better idea. Mm. So literally go ahead and get started on the work and then theoretically, honestly, you'll have a better idea. But also it also can be a total trick because depending on if you have any, if you can have any concrete progress in, you know, 10 hours of work, then you might be able to just push them off in general and just say, see, look, we're obviously making progress. We'll be done soon. Oh, man, that that hurts my agile background. I don't think a story should even be 10 hours. That seems like a really big story to me. That is a lot. I mean, that's a day and a half, but that's what a day and a half is. It's 10 hours. (laughs) Theoretically, right? Is it? Just kidding. Or maybe nine, six hour billable day plus three. I liked on Twitter, I saw this tweet by Glenn Mailer, Glennathan on Twitter. Um, He has scrum estimation cards and it only comes with three cards and they say one or too fucking big or no fucking clue. (laughs) Those are the only three cards. I feel we've had this argument, not argument, but we've had this thing before where business just doesn't get it. This is the way it should be done. And I don't want to say like business doesn't get it or that... I don't know. We, we all have the same interest, right? To to ship ship working software to users for I'm assuming some business purpose. Mm-hmm. And Agile is supposed to help with that. If you're if you're doing what we said earlier about like you know working on the next most important thing. A lot of what you were describing earlier sounds like lean and Kanban to me. I think that's the way that works, where there's no sprints and then there's a, a minimal backlog. And, uh, you just have to pull the next important thing in when you're ready to work on it. Yeah, I mean, I think Kanban is generally more appealing. Why is that? To me. Um, it's a little more, it feels, so Kanban feels like it fundamentally recognizes the only truth that, like, when someone is working on something, they cannot be working on something else. Right. I'm not saying, you know, not saying that someone can't be working on something else, but literally in a moment in time, they cannot be working on two things. They can only be working on one thing. Kanban is the methodology that fundamentally recognizes that and makes that the core of this experience. And rather than spending a lot of time on other things that really are are planning to make people feel better, which is, I believe, why Agile is more popular, because it gives people the illusion of control, Kanban more truly embraces the fact that you don't have control over the, the simple fact that someone cannot physically work on two things at once. Right. By the limiting work in progress. Right. So the production line will be halted. So if there are three QA people and there are three QA stories uh, in progress and you finish a story as a developer and the next place that story goes is QA, you can't start a new story. You're stuck with that story until QA is unblocked. Hmm. But then you could be free to help unblock them and maybe move your priorities over to QA. What happens if QA is super backed up because something is down? Then the whole line is blocked. Right. Then everyone, yeah, then people should be working on bringing it back up. Because the alternative alternative is developers will, you know, plow through four more stories, they'll go to QA, and the QA will reject them. And it's just a lot of waste that happens by all this context switching of stories back and forth. Mm. And That's usually probably a loss in quality because people are distracted and there's a, a artificial time pressure because of the back pressure. But in companies where like there's an ops team and a developer team and a QA team, how does that work out? Do ops invite developers to come in and help? Or, like what if it's an 
ops only interesting. Well, then I, I think that's up to the company and management to like either beef up beef up ops or like the QA example. If you have three QA people and there's more QA stories than QA can handle, then maybe you need more QA people or maybe they need to QA less stuff or I don't know. Right. You need to like change that part of the thing. I've always kind of like, I don't know, not hated, but like I haven't really liked the idea of Kanban. Um, mostly because when I've seen it used, it just seems like an excuse for project managers to like go to AC more and get a bunch of boards and colored strings and make a pretty board and then... Are you saying that actually what we secretly want is crafts? Maybe. Yeah. I think project managers are bored and they like to do crafty things, yes. I we mean, should create a software methodology that involves macrame somehow. <laughs> that involves more glitter. Yeah. There's obviously a lack of glitter and software development I'm can we go ahead and get the website the glitter manifesto <laughs> running and uh, um, all of us need to age 30 years and then we can write in the glitter <laughs> manifesto. Um, no, but, but but what you're saying about Kanban like that it you know embraces that there are going to be a certain thing working on at some point and then what we said earlier about like if we're I guess kind of having a realization right now that if you're doing agile and you're doing points but you're not estimating more than a week or two in the future like what are the points for? Yes. The question is, who do they serve? Right. And um, they serve the people who get anxious about things. I mean, I think it helps um, in sprint planning as a development team to say, well, if we say this thing is, I, I know every point scale is relative, but if we say this thing is a 13 and we're saying we're not going to accept any points that are larger than a five or an eight, then, you know, why is this thing too big? And it kind of forces us to break it down. I guess we'd have to be a little more disciplined about breaking things down if we didn't have any kind of scale attached to them. Um yeah, I don't know. The idea of Kanban, if you use like Trello or something else similar, seems like a really good idea. Most places I've been like require a physical board and the project managers like the idea of somebody like physically moving something down the lane with their hands, which as a programmer worker just seems ridiculous. I've also been in a company that had two Kanban boards, one physical, one digital, and it was promised every week we'll keep them in sync. That never happens. I did have a place where we had physical and virtual, and we did keep them in sync. The project manager was on top of that. Oh, man, that seems like a nightmare. <laughs> I think I've said this before, but I, I do like like kind of like game part of Agile. I feel that people do need time constraints or else, you know, tasks will just inflate. So if you don't have, you know, an idea of how big a story is, you could just be gold plating forever. If you don't have a goal to get X number of stories done a week, uh, again, you could just, you know, add extra features that don't need to be there. So I do like Agile but, for that, even though it's, I mean, Agile is bullshit, but it's like the best thing we have. It's less bullshit, kind of bullshit than everything else. <laughs> but don't you think if you were a little bit more disciplined, like you wouldn't do that? Or do you think everyone just does that by default? Goal plating. I'm not sure it's a discipline thing. I mean, you could always argue that, you know, that's a val that's a better thing. But if you didn't make an agreement of the relative size of the story before you start it, then you have no kind of baseline. Mm -hmm. I think I'd like the idea of a sprint, not necessarily for the the actual sprint, you know, noun of getting things done within the week. Um, but I'd like the idea of a sprint because it kind of bookends, you know, a retro and sprint planning. Like, I'm, I'm all for, like, not having too many meetings, but I do feel like retro is very important. And I think sprint planning is pretty important too. Right. So you, you've set up a mini deliverable and then you can adjust your behavior uh, on that success or failure as opposed to just going on indefinitely. <sighs> now I want to try Kanban again. We are starting a new project. So how does Kanban work for a remote for those of you that have done lots of Kanban? I imagine it works the same way. You just use Trello instead of a physical board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there are Kanban boards, too, that will enforce limits, so you won't be able to pull a new story in until one lane is clear. I'm not sure if Trello supports that. Yeah, you know, like Jira and Rally have Kanban things in them. 
I'll put a link in the show notes to some of my favorite talks by Mary Poppendike. Uh, she talks about Kanban and she talks about like the seven wastes of software development, which is one of my favorite talks. Seven wastes? Yeah. So uh, I think the Toyota way defines seven wastes in manufacturing and uh. yeah, in lean. And I don't know if Mary Poppendike is the one who kind of made this correlation uh, or not, but she talks about it. Uh, and they correlate the wastes of manufacturing to the wastes in software engineering. And it turns out that there usually, you know, is an analog in manufacturing to uh, software development. Hmm. So a waste in manufacturing is like having extra parts uh, and a waste in software is having extra features that people don't actually use. Hmm. And it turns Two off, engines. it turns off, it turns out that handoffs both in manufacturing and software are also expensive. You mean like from team to team? Well, from like developer to QA and, and back yeah. again. Yeah. Hmm. I'm excited to read that. And my favorite thing that they focus on that I, I feel that people you know don't appreciate is partially done work. So if you've done work on a feature, the more time that you know that is not in production is, is also a waste. So if you guys were gonna do a, a rewrite, would you choose Kanban or would you use Tracker? I would choose <laughs> to never ever do a rewrite. Okay, that was, that was, an, epic, so. that was an epic segue. <laughs> But I mean, so, so in one of that, there's that article about when someone rewrote, they rewrote from a Arsenal handmade Perl web framework to Python and Django. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a great example of the kind of rewrite that's literally just, there is a business need if you can't hire anyone to work on your app or the only person you can hire is, you know, can basically, you know, add zeros to their bill. Right. And this seems like a mostly successful rewrite. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, you know, I think a lot of it, too, is, uh, you know, they said at the end, they said the thing that I feel like every single, re like, I mean, even, I've even been in the situation of, of rewriting features, you know, of, you know, the whole Flash to HTML5 conversions. I've had to do a couple of those. And I mean, there's going to be probably ever, ever more of them over time um, as HTML5 finally catches up to, to Flash, because Flash is good in its own stuff. But uh, but the whole thing that when people propose a rewrite, they say, well, everything that the old thing had. Right. And that is not a starting point <laughs> because inevitably there are things that you forgot. There are things that don't need to be in there. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to, I mean, thinking of a rewrite as not even, you know, maybe rewrites corrupted. We need to think of it almost as an opportunity to reimagine the product and say, you know, and what is this product good at? What does it need to remain good at? And what are the things that, you know, can we go ahead and drop Plaxo support? Probably, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Like you don't need to rebuild support for, you know, MySpace integration or something. Those are just, you know, like things that would hopefully maybe be obvious. But literally if someone, you know, if you handed a rewrite to a, a team that wasn't critical and wasn't really a good consulting shop, they might literally just rebuild everything. Right. So two things. Should expectations from the owner of the product change when doing a rewrite? And then uh, if you were slowly breaking your app into like tiny little pieces, can you slowly start instead of rewriting? Just like depends on the technology. So for the second, the second question on modular rewrites, it depends on the technology. If you're changing from certain frameworks to other frameworks, maybe. And maybe you can also rewrite sections of the website if you are good at your traffic rebalancing. If you use something like Akamai, then that's, you know, that's a tool to facilitate a rewrite. However, at the same time, it will make it take longer. 
And I think that that's also another thing in that interesting article about the rewrite is they finished it. You know, it seemed like that consultant felt bad that they only finished a complete rewrite in 11 months. And I think that that's, they did a very good job. (laughs) Or uh, it must have been a very small or relatively small project. That seems seems amazingly successful. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. 11 months is amazingly successful because the problem too is if you do allow a modular rewrite, it's easy. Then you get into the business of maintaining two things. Right. I'll I'll post a a link to... I think it's an Uncle Bob article about the big rewrite. Uh, yeah, that's there's... like the classic one. Right. Chad Fowler has a lot too. Is it necessarily maintaining yeah. two things? Though, if you're it almost saying... always is. Yeah, because if, if your if you, project's I mean, in... Literally. Yeah, if your project's <laughs> literally, in production... you have two applications. Right, literally, right but it's not like things. you're ma- maintaining two things. Usually it means we're maintaining two versions of the same thing. Or that's like... going yeah. so, no. so, so business will say nothing's going to change. You'll have it on different servers. You'll have different, you know, operational support. It is two things. I'm not advocating kidding doing a rewrite a module rewrite that way i'm saying okay we need to build You're something new things and i'm saying build, that an, it's... build an http api for that thing and then consume it that way and then eventually break things out break things out and then would you rewrite the old thing to use the http api well, we'll otherwise the whole thing still be using it in the same way i mean it would be nice if your thing was already broken up into you know mm-hmm smaller services and you can like rewrite them one at a time and not everything at once. If your app's already broken up that way you probably don't have to rewrite. Exactly. <laughs> like that's a very uh, ideal situation. Unless it literally is something like my services are written in Perl and I'm sick of trying to hire Perl people then you might still migrate. Yeah. Right? But when people approach the big rewrite they always think that you know the old thing's never going to change but that's almost never the case. It's going to change and then you're going to have to stop and someone's going to have to work on making those changes to the old thing. And then you're also going to have to port those changes to the to the new thing. So the new thing is going to replace the old thing. The old thing is always a moving target. We're getting new features added. So yeah. it's, it's which is why you don't want to lengthen having it be alive. Yeah. But Jaron, you actually you asked two questions, and now I forgot what the first one was. Do people need to change their? Uh-uh. Oh yeah, because I like that one. Do product people need to change their expectations? No, because they probably didn't know what they were in the first place. <laughs> so that's my argument: is that the product person, if you if you ask a product person on, so let's say, let's, you know, pretend that there is one single product person who owns all of Gmail. Let's pretend that that's true. Um, I walk up to them and like kick them in the shins and say, what does Gmail do? Um, they will probably give me like 5% of the features. They don't actually know because the system is so complex. Without research, they don't actually know. And when they actually research everything, they'll find all these things. Like, have you noticed, like if you actually, Gmail's actually, I just randomly picked that, but that's actually a decent example for this. I mean, because of inbox which is inbox is essentially a rewrite of gmail and search on inbox sucks have you tried to search anything like search on gmail it's actually good because it uses a search functionality and one of the reasons why you bother to use google for emails because what's google good at they're good at search and that's why i use gmail but inbox kind of blows at search thus far but you know it's just not there yet it didn't make the list of things that we need to prioritize in the rewrite this is me with no context completely imagining what they're doing i have no idea but it's an interesting thing to think about <clears throat> so how would you have any of you approached to rewrite before and how did it go and what lessons did you learn uh i guess it depends on the rewrite i've had some rewrites that are like here's this prototype that somebody else made it's in production can you fix it <laughs> Um, I've done a rewrite where the problem was that the needle on it kept moving. It got redesigned a couple times while I was working on it, which lengthened the rewrite. So that was the worst part of the rewrite was the lengthening of it. It was, it's, you know, left alone in a dark room. I felt like I could rewrite it pretty quickly, but with all the process and, you know, every 
everyone and their mother having an opinion, it took a lot longer. A different rewrite I did that was good was actually a modular rewrite. Um, it was JavaScript to JavaScript, um, no framework additions. It was just breaking it up into more modular pieces, which then was kind of the movement toward if they wanted to add a framework later, then they could. So it was really, you know, breaking into small functions, adding testing, adding a build process, um, the stuff that you're supposed to do. And once you've done a, that, there was none of the original. To a, well, I mean, there no, there was a lot of, I mean, definitely a good amount of the original code, but it would be something like, let's take this 150 line function and break it out into, I don't know, like eight distinct functions that do one thing right. or close to one thing as well as we can, because everything's highly coupled in 150 line function. But breaking it out, and there were a couple that we had to leave intact just because they were, you know, my God, I have no idea what's happening there. Um, and, you know, it is just a, it's a refactor, really. So that's maybe it's more of a refactor than a rewrite. So we just but we did, we did add functionality. We did add functionality. So it's a rewrite. Hmm. What were you saying, Javon? I was going to say that we, just, we were just advocating for not randomly refactoring. Well, not refactoring said, for refactoring's sake, but you can yeah, realize you have a bad You should never refactor. <laughs> yeah. If you have a jQuery app, then you should refactor it. I guess the only reason to do a rewrite is when you need an architecture change for, I guess, business reasons. So take a really silly example that I had a PHP side project um, in the late 2000s that I eventually had to rewrite to Rails because I didn't want to work on it anymore. And it was a big mess. And I wrote it when I was really inexperienced. Um, and now that it is in Ruby, um, I can maintain it a lot easier. Um, I've also, also done similar things for you know, client work where things were written in another language and nobody wanted to work on it for whatever reason. So the, the options of business were either hire people that knew that language and were excited about it or rewrite it. Right. But I mean, this all, I think, is different based on your scale. So if you're talking about a project that, you know, has been working, worked on for like five years, has been in production and a team has been, you know, maintaining this for five years, mm-hmm. you're talking about a rewrite of something of that scale, like that should always be, you know, a last measure. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that team doing that it needs to be rewritten? Right. I saw that happening a lot in the Microsoft world. So, you know, every two years, Microsoft makes some product that they will claim solves all of your problems magically. And all the teams want to rewrite everything in the magic new framework. Anything else we want to talk about before we go into picks? I think we're ready for picks. Well, Pam, you're going to a conference soon, right? I will be speaking at Forward JS soon so, possibly we'll have spoken by the time this episode goes out is it called forward js because i had to search for it and i think it's called forward two it's forward and this is the second one and so it's more forwarder oh okay and anything like, in javascript is not JS. but i couldn't find js anywhere in the name or description oh so well, i mean it's forward their twitter handle is forward js <laughs> oh, okay but most of the talks were in javascript yeah cool i don't know if i have a pick this week uh, oh no, I, I've got it. I'm picking the sharks. I'm calling the sharks. The picking sharks. the sharks from the Super Bowl. That's what I picked. Did you see the sad beach ball? I mean, it looked kind of derpy. <laughs> I saw it when she was performing. There's some good gifts of uh, the sad beach ball. I'll have to find some. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Oh, so good. I'll also drop a, a link for the su- superb owl made out of guacamole. Because some people, apparently, people who don't care about sports had superb owl parties. <laughs> Because it's Super Bowl, but with the different... Oh, that's genius. You just got it. <laughs> you just got it. Super Bowl. So I'll drop that link too. I'm going to have a repick. I think a few episodes ago, I picked The Martian. And I just learned it's going to be a movie this year. Uh, it's going to be starring Matt Damon and Sean Bean. Uh, and it's going to be directed by Ridley Scott. So The Martian was my favorite book of last year. And I'm really excited about the movie this year. 
Justin, what's your pick? I'm going to pick uh, the NIM programming language. So it used to be called Nimrod. It got renamed to NIM, I think, in November or December last year. It is a statically typed compile language, so kind of like Go. And it has a type system very similar to Go. It has a syntax that looks like Python. And um, it doesn't have... So for most Ruby or Python or I guess JavaScript developers, they're used to installing dependencies in a certain way. Uh, and Go has a really different way of installing dependencies where you have to have a go path and uh, go root and when you you go get things from uh, GitHub or Bitbucket or wherever the code's hosted, it puts it in a uh, special directory structure. Um, NIM has a more traditional package manager so that there's this um, package manager, it's called Nimble. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a I guess I would call it like a fringe or esoteric language, but it seems to be rapidly, at least on Reddit, um, getting more and more popular. And I might like it more than Go. Um, it has the same uh, issues as the type system that Go has where, I mean, at least coming from Haskell, I was kind of surprised that this thing was supposed to return a string and then it returned nil and the type system was okay with that. Um, I would have preferred if it if I had to guard against that. Um, so you can still have runtime errors, unlike Haskell, but it seems like a pretty cool language. I don't know. I'm going to play with it more and compare it to Go and Rust and see next time I want to write something uh, at that level what I'm going to use. So yeah, uh, I think it's nimlang org. I'll put a link in the show notes. Also, there's a URL shortener that I'm working on on my GitHub, which I will also link to. Cool. Jervon, do you have a pick? Yeah. Uh, my music pick is a song called Hillbilly Highway by Steve Earle. And then I've been playing around with this uh, basically like a curated package of packages um, for Emacs called Space Max. Uh, it's geared towards people that have zero knowledge of Emacs and use Vim and, and want to have the power of Vim editing and the power of the Emacs ecosystem or OS also. Um, so yeah, those are my pick. Cool. So show notes are at turing.cool slash 38. Uh, follow us on Twitter at turingcool and I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. 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 How was game night? It was fun. It was fun. What, game, fun. what games did you play? We played Dead of Winter. And I think Jervon and I both should have wanted Lost because we kind of misread our objective. Yes. <laughs> that literally is weird. like your one job in those kind of games. Though. <laughs> yeah. So. How does that game work? So it's a co-op game, so it's kind of, I think I picked it a few episodes ago, but it's like survival, you have to survive the winter, but then every single person has their own objective. So you're all trying to survive, but in order to win-win, you need to complete your objective, which might be like a hypochondriac and you need to finish the game with three medicine. Uh, and there's also the potential for somebody's subjective to just be outright betrayal and they want everybody to die. Um, but yeah, I misread my objective. I needed to have one character with two books, and I just had two books. And I didn't give them to the same character, so it's really stupid. How and I needed work? four item cards, but I did not know that item cards were only things that you could equip. I thought there were things like food and stuff. Mm. So. How many so people yeah, we play? Didn't, we didn't read the requirements correctly. Uh, five, I think. Yeah, three to five. I think it's a little better with like three because there's less time like not playing. 
You're, you're doing things a lot more with like three people. With five, it would be like 20 minutes until your next turn again. That is true. Was there five people at game night, or is there five people playing that game? No, just five playing that game. Was it a big turnout? No, it was like the worst board game night turnout in my life. <laughs> I think it was too cold for everybody. I don't know why, but like I don't I haven't cared about board games too much in the past, you know, few months. And then last night, all of a sudden, I had like a FOMO that I wanted to go to board game night. <laughs> you should have FOMO. <laughs> um. Yeah, I really can only stay downtown like one day a week. You should start one in New Jersey. Uh, yeah, but then I kind of miss, I would miss the the tech crowd, uh, mm. you know, cross-section. Like, I think board game night being at Indy Hall and being organized by people that are in the tech industry, I'd probably, I don't know, maybe I'm just being you know, bias or something, but I'd probably relate to people in that better. 